enlighten me Bitch, I be a boss, I got the sauce, no point in fighting me Demons leave them torch, I run my kingdom, call me sire We never taking L's, only lessons No, we never counting fails, only blessings Never stressing I said enlighten me I be a boss, I got the sauce, no point in fighting me Gang, they hyping me, rightfully I am stable, I am able, I am wealthy Full of health, on the rise, I got the belt You got a problem? Check yourself, bitch Welcome to another episode of Enlighten Me, Bitch I'm your host, Ren Woods <sighs> I've been really tired this week I almost didn't want to record if you listen to some of my previous episodes or if you know me personally, you know that I lost my brother in August to a drug overdose. I think the grief process is super weird because it comes in waves. Like one day I will be laughing, having a blast, living my life like normal. I can go out with my friends or my boyfriend, have a great time. And then the next day it hits me in the face and I am bawling crying because I saw a boy in line at the grocery store who was wearing a bunch of bracelets and it reminded me of all the bracelets that my brother was wearing. Grief is just so weird. My boyfriend's stepmom actually sent me this quote a couple weeks after Harper passed away. I'm going to read it because it really resonated with me. It was really one of the only things that resonated with me during the time and I'll read it to you guys. It says, grief I've learned is really just love. It's all the love you want to give but cannot. All of that unspent love gathers in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in the hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. And I think a person named Jamie Anderson said this. I don't know who that person is. I should probably research that before I start talking about this quote. But, um, you know, whatever. Maybe, can we research that? Who Jamie Anderson is? Will you look that up? Thank you. Thanks, Gerardo. You got me. I've been struggling a lot lately with my grief. It comes up. Oh, it's a snowboarder. Okay, so Jamie Anderson is a snowboarder. Interesting. Did someone die close to her? Did she, like, write a book on death or grief or anything? All right, well, thank you for that beautiful quote, Jamie Anderson. I was expecting it to come from, like, a motivational speaker or something. I'll be totally honest. It just comes in waves. There's no other way to describe it. You know, I'm the oldest kid in my family. I've got two younger siblings and I know that I have to be strong for them. I know I have to be strong for my mom and my dad who have both taken this really hard. And it's only been about eight months since Harper passed away. And we're still very much all grieving in different ways. Everybody grieves in their own type of way. Some of us get super angry. Some of us retreat and become hermit crabs and don't want to see the light of the day. And I think for me, I kind of switched into caretaker mode pretty quickly because I knew that I had to be strong for the other members of my family. You know, and my mom likes being around a lot of people that really comforted her when Harper passed away. I want to talk about like what the grieving process is like because I don't think enough people really talk about it. I don't even know if there is a way to describe it. I mean, that quote pretty much perfectly sums it up. It's like, I had so much love for my brother, and now I don't know what to do with all this love I have for him because he's not here to accept it. 
My brother and I had a really close relationship. We talked on the phone a lot. We FaceTimed a lot when we weren't together. And in the few months before he died, we spent a lot of time having life talks. And I think one of the things that I'm most grateful for, and I hope I don't get like emotional talking about this, but is he sent me a text message about a month before he passed away. And he said that he wanted to thank me for always challenging him instead of lecturing him like everybody else did. You know, I took the time to really build him up and make sure that he knew that he was worthy of having a good life and that he was smart, intelligent, talented. He had the capability to become something one day. And I know he knew that I loved him. So I don't have any regrets about that whatsoever. We had a perfect relationship in that sense. But I do have regrets. The weekend he died, I was at a bachelorette party in Austin, Texas for my best friend Katie, who got married in October. And it was a wild girls weekend. And I had seen Harper two weeks before that trip. And we had talked in between there. And we had plans to go to lunch the next week. But he called me on that Saturday morning and I woke up super hungover as one does on a bachelorette party. (laughs) And I didn't answer his call, but I texted him immediately and said, hey, I'm in Austin. I'll call you back tomorrow. Let's make a plan for this week. What's really, really weird. Well, first, let me say I have so much regret about not answering my phone that day. So much regret. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking, could I have done something differently if I would have answered the phone? Could I have talked him out of doing drugs that night? The answer is no. There's nothing else that I could have done. There's nothing else that any of my other family members could have done. We did all we could. We helped him get into so many different rehabs, sober living facilities, helped him finish school. We were there for him emotionally. 100% of the time. So I I know, like, logically, my brain is telling me, no, there's nothing else that you could have done. But I can't help but think sometimes in moments of weakness, when my grief is really getting the best of me, what else could I have done? Was I not there for him enough? When he really started using drugs, it's like when I first moved to LA. I was about 21, 22. And he was, I think, 14 at that point. Did he feel abandoned by me because I packed my shit up and moved to the other side of the country to pursue my dreams? I think about that all the time. I'm a person, I'm very close with my family. I fly back to South Carolina all the time. You know, I think I see my family seven, eight times a year, but I can't help but wonder, did he feel like he was abandoned by me? Could he count on me during those times? And I think that he could because... Like I said, we had a close relationship. He always called me, asked me for advice on things because he knew that he was never going to get a judgmental perspective from me. I'm always understanding of everybody. And no matter what kind of shit you've done in the past, I don't care about that kind of stuff. I mean, I have friends from all walks of life, but I don't know. It's This is just part of the grief process, I guess. Nobody talks about that. I want to be vulnerable with you guys. I want to share the truth about my feelings because I think it's important. So I'll go back to that weekend that he passed away. What's super eerie is that 
I ended up that Saturday night sitting next to a friend who I wasn't as close with at the time. She is a mutual friend that I have with my friend Katie, who was having the bachelorette party. And she opened up to me at that dinner about various things that she was going through in her personal life. So she made me feel comfortable enough to share with her my experience with living with a brother who is addicted to drugs. And it's a very difficult road. If any of you do live with an addict, just remember that they are human and they need love just as much as you do. They need love and they need understanding. But I do empathize with the family member or the spouse or the friend of the addict because it's it's fucking hard. It's not easy. But we do it because we love those people. I just had this overwhelming sense of emotion. And I don't know if it was a premonition, call it what you want, but I started sobbing, crying at this dinner. And I just, I looked her in the eye and I said, I am so afraid that Harper is going to die. And he died 12 hours later. I don't know what that was. It's creepy. It's weird. But I think I inherently knew maybe that last set of messages he sent me that really meant something to me, you know, where he thanked me for being there for him all those times. You know, I don't know. Maybe he sent that to me because his soul knew he was going to die. I don't know. I I don't have all the answers. I just know what I'm feeling and what I'm going through, and I'm sharing that with you guys, and maybe you can relate and maybe you can't. I was going to talk about something completely different this week, and I wanted to keep this light and airy and fun and lighthearted, whatever, but I received a message on Instagram this week from somebody that I don't know well, but I I do know this person, and they sent me a message thanking me for posting so much on social media about Harper's death, being open and honest about how he died, really just sharing my struggle living with a brother who's an addict, everything we've been through with the grief process and, and whatnot. This person thanked me because it led this person to check themselves into treatment and get off of the opioids that they were on. Now they are sober, working, doing amazing. They are in NA meetings weekly, multiple meetings weekly. And I started crying when I got this message. This person asked for anonymity. They don't want me saying, and I would never anybody's name. And I'm being very general about this message. I'm not giving any specific details because I I do want to protect this person's identity. But it meant so much to me that I'm probably going to get emotional just talking about it because I just can't imagine what it's like as an addict struggling. And you don't want anybody to know that you're going through this struggle especially your your family members, your friends, people that you're close to, people that you work with, because it's not something that you can control. And it makes me so angry when people judge addicts. It makes me so sad because at a certain point, their their addiction is bigger than they are. Yeah, they need professional help. Of course they do. So I think as a family member, spouse, friend, sibling, aunt, uncle, grandparent, child of somebody who is an addict, understanding is key, compassion is key, and love is key. Now, if they are violently threatening you and putting your health at risk, then yeah, at a certain point, you have to put your foot down 
and set boundaries with these people, but you can do this from an understanding perspective. You don't have to totally shut them off, cut them out of your life. They say in Al-Anon, while the addict is in treatment, seeking to be better, you can support them, be there for them, be present with them. But if they are not seeking treatment and they are actively using, then that's when have to set the boundaries. But as long as they are putting in the work to be in treatment, I always struggled going back and forth between tough love and understanding. I I never knew, does my brother need tough love from me? Does he need understanding? And I think that addicts need a little bit of both. I don't think that they want to feel totally abandoned by their family because think about it. They're already so ashamed. They have so much guilt for all of the trouble that they've caused you, all of the turmoil that they're putting you through because of their addictions. They're already feeling down on themselves. They know that what they're doing is wrong. They don't need you to tell them that and make them feel worse than how they already feel. So I think, yeah, understanding that already is a step in the right direction. My brother would sometimes, well, sometimes all the time, he would call me and ask me for money. And I put my foot down. That was a boundary that I always set with him. And I said, I cannot give you money because I don't trust that you're not going to buy drugs with it. And I don't think that you should ever give money to any addict, no matter the circumstance. Because yeah, they are going to be buying drugs with it. And they can tell you that they are getting food with it. They are going to Starbucks with it, but they're buying drugs with it. (laughs) We used to laugh because my brother would always tell my dad that he was going bowling with his NA meeting people or the people he lived with in sober living or was in rehab with, or he needed a haircut. Those were always the two things that my brother said he needed money for. And so my dad was like, damn, son, like as much money as I'm giving you for haircuts and bowling, you better be an expert bowler and bald by now. (laughs) Which was so funny that those were the two things that he always said he needed money for. But I decided to support him from afar. If he needed food, I would say, okay, look, you're hungry. You don't have any money. You need food. I will call the nearest Domino's Pizza. I will call the nearest sandwich shop myself. I'll order you whatever it is you want. I will pay for it with my credit card over the phone. You can have whatever you want on the menu. I'll pay for it. No problems. But you got to go pick it up yourself and get it. He was always very grateful and very thankful when he had kind of, you know, really fucked up so many times that everybody pretty much shut him out. I wanted to be there for him in that way because I knew that he felt super alone and isolated. And addictions can do that to you. They can make you feel super isolated and alone. I I just don't think people understand the shame and the guilt that an addict feels. And that makes me so sad. And I can't really speak on what it is like for the addict. I can sit here and I I can empathize. Harper isn't the only addict in my life. I, I have others. And I have plenty of friends who are sober now who have been through AA, NA, and I'm so proud of them. And I think it's amazing that they can do that. Another thing that the person who reached out to me this week and thanked me for all my posts about Harper said to me was that they were afraid of their work finding out because they would probably lose their job. I'm bringing this up because I have someone else in my life who had a similar situation. They were afraid to go to rehab because it would affect their job and they couldn't do their job. 
Eventually, this person did go to rehab. They're fine now. They got another job. But I think there's a problem in today's society that this many people are afraid to let everybody know about their addictions. And they can't be open and honest about it because they know that they'll lose their jobs. And that's because of the stigma that we as a collective have about addicts. It does make me sad that a lot of people feel that way. And if you work in an industry and you have an employee who comes to you and says that they have an addiction, please realize how hard that is for somebody. It's certainly not easy. And you got to be understanding. And I don't know. I I kind of like see addiction as mental illness. If somebody has a mental illness and they got to take a breather for a few weeks and take care of themselves, you're not going to fire them. That would be ruthless and heartless. So why should somebody get fired just because they have an addiction? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. I think if we had more compassion for addicts in our society, that there would be a lot less of them. I do. I, I do believe that. We shouldn't be ashamed to talk about anything. I mean, shit, I've made... Oh, Plenty of mistakes in my life that um, we'll get to as the podcast goes on. Not really, none drug related, but been there, done it all. I always crack up when I see these people talking about a quarter life crisis on the internet. Because it's like, okay, Jessica, you dyed your hair pink and you quit your nine to five. Like That's not a real quarter life crisis, okay? You can dye your hair back to blonde. You can get another job. How about go steal a kid in Walmart or get 5150 by your family? That's a real quarter life crisis. Cracks me up. I mean, hell, when I was 25, I f***ed my boss and started dating him and that ended in a hellious disaster. Anyone who starts dating their boss and thinks that that's going to go well for them is delusional. Anyway, we survived. We fucking survived that. But I didn't even know if you could call that a quarter life crisis. It's not. I mean, it was a huge mistake and it was absolutely horrifying and the repercussions that I suffered through because of that. But you live and you learn, baby. So it's like, I can't sit up here and judge anybody. And I'm lucky that the people I have in my life don't judge me for my mistakes. So why would I judge you for yours? But anyways, if you're going to have a quarter life crisis, don't be fucking boring with it. Go all out, baby. Anyways, back to my brother. What's funny about my brother passing away when I was on a bachelorette party is, well, nothing's funny about that, but now I can look back on it and laugh. I wasn't thinking this at the time, obviously. I just couldn't stop thinking about the fact that my brother was gone. But that Saturday night when I was at dinner with my girlfriends, I was wearing six-inch heels, right? There was a bar underneath the table, and I kind of, like, pushed the bar a little too hard. And my I broke my heel completely off. So I had this shoe on with no heel. I was, like, carrying the heel around with my hand. And I think I eventually put it in my purse. I had to like walk like on my toe like this, like on the ball of my foot kind of. Of course, I had my regular shoe on the right foot, but on my left foot was missing a heel. So I kind of had to like tiptoe around like this like all night. And I thought to myself, I can be a crybaby bitch, go back to the hotel, go to sleep like a lame girl. Or I can tough this shit out, go out all night and just limp around on the ball of my foot. And what did I choose to do? The ladder. Because that's 
what vodka does for you, baby. It gives you the confidence to do anything. So I literally limped around on this heelless shoe all night long. My friends were all taking Instagram videos of me, just cracking up, laughing, making fun of me. Of course, like I, I'm always the comedic relief in any situation. I, One time when I went to Vegas, my dress completely broke apart, had to safety pin it together. And then I ended up having to buy a completely new one in the gift shop. Absolutely horrifying. Wardrobe malfunctions are like a magnet to me. Honestly, chaos in general is like a magnet to me. All I could think about is I, I had seen that Harper had watched my Instagram story that night because, you know, when he passed away, I wanted to like look and make sure that he was like active online. That story had been posted around like 1 a.m. He died around 2 a.m. All I can think about now is that is my brother's last impression of me as this shoeless fucking idiot hobbling around Austin, Texas in a cowboy bar. <laughs> Just like out of my fucking mind. And that's his last impression of me on this earth. That's what he thinks about me. And of course, I was not thinking about that in the moment, but now I can look back and laugh on it. I generally have an optimistic outlook on life, right? I try to make the best of every situation. I always see the best in people. That can kind of get me in trouble sometimes because I attract the riffraff and, you know, those close to me who uh, don't trust anybody have to step in and say, okay, Ren, you're being a little too nice. Uh, so I have to have tough people in my life. But it's in my nature to make light of things and to make jokes about things because that makes me feel better. I have to look at this comically in order to fucking survive. And people can say what they want about my ability to laugh about that type of thing. You know, for some people, they might be horrified by that story that I think that's funny. But here's what I got to say to anyone who thinks that is horrifying or that's insensitive. Fuck off. This isn't your story, your journey. This is me and how I'm coping, and that's okay. You know, one of my family members got shithouse drunk every single night following Harper's death for like two weeks straight. I didn't say a fucking word because people just cope in different ways. I have another family member who stayed in the bed all day long for two weeks straight, didn't bathe didn't shower, didn't brush their hair, stayed in the same clothes. That's fine. That's their way of grieving. Also, I think during the grieving process, nobody really talks about how much you argue as a family. And I'm going to be real open and honest about that. You know, my family's probably going to kill me for being this open and honest about it. But I think it can help people who are going through this. It's okay if you get in arguments with your family members when somebody dies naturally, you're all going to start blaming each other. And it's just because you're so confused and you're so upset and you're so sad and you're mad. You're so fucking mad at the person who died. Harper, why did you have to take those drugs? Why did you have to be addicted? And why did you have to fucking leave me on this earth without you? And that's just, you know, emotion's going to get the best of me. But like, that's the anchor that that's natural to go through that. And it takes the life out of me. I just, I get so angry sometimes and so upset and I want to scream and cry. And if you feel these things, you have to really feel them and go through them. You know, you got to go through it because if you don't, all of this shit stays bottled up inside of you. And then you end up taking out on somebody who's innocent and doesn't deserve your fits and outbursts of anger. Go to therapy, talk to your friends, talk out loud, get it out. And I do, I think you got to be careful who you talk to too, because 
there are some friends who I cannot talk to about this. There are some friends who are very understanding and who get what I'm going through. And I love talking to them. You got to figure out who it is that makes you comfortable, makes you feel safe talking about this and being honest. But yeah, I, I think there were a lot of people at my parents' house the week after my brother died. And, um, my mom, like she loves being around people. She being around these people uplifted her, made her feel amazing and wonderful. I think that's incredible that she had that support. My sister, on the other hand, she is an introvert. She hates being around people when she is feeling bad about herself. And she was very sad. And she probably took Harper's death the hardest at the beginning. And I felt for her because my mom wanted her to be more social and presented as grateful that these people were coming over to our home. Why are you sitting in the bed all day? Why are you not speaking to these people? Get dressed, you know, whatever was a concern of my mom's. And when I finally got home, they were constantly at each other's throats because neither one of them could understand the other's perspective. And I, you know, I'm always the peacemaker. I'm always trying to mediate everybody's fights. And I explained to my mom, look, like, my sister is an introvert. She doesn't like all these people. She's doing the best that she can, but she thinks in her mind that she's doing the right thing by just staying in the back bedroom and not coming out because she knows that she's not going to be the best version of herself. And she doesn't want to present a less than perfect version of herself to these people who she's not that close to because these are really my mom's friends. They weren't my sister's friends. My mom was upset because she can't fathom not being social when someone comes over to your home. It's rude to not have a conversation with somebody when they're in your home. My sister was feeling like my mom was misunderstanding her need to be alone. You know, and then my mom felt misunderstood because she's like, I raised you better than this. How could you not present yourself in a great way? And it's like, not everyone is like you, mom. Not everybody can get up and be peppy and happy as you are. My mom is an incredible person. She bounces back from shit so easily. Nobody knows how strong my mom is. She has endured so much shit in her life and she just gets back up every day like nothing happened. And I am a strong person because of my mother. You know, I have learned firsthand how to be strong and how to persevere through all the bullshit because of how strong my mom is. And I've seen it. So I commend her for that truly. But if you're going through this type of shit as a family, you guys just be nice to each other and try to understand the other person's perspective. I probably fucked up during this time too, because I am kind of bossy. I was commanding my younger siblings, like, do this, do that, and, like, getting frustrated with them. And that's wrong, too. My family members weren't the only people that were doing weird shit when this happened. Like, you, you can't really, like, we're all human. We're going to make mistakes. And I'm sure if, you know, you asked any of my family members, they'd probably have a long list of shit that annoyed them about me that week. I found out about Harper's death on that Sunday. I, I, I got on my plane from Austin to L.A., I landed at LAX, and it, what's weird is that I had been trying to connect to the internet while I was on the plane, and three of my girlfriends were on the same flight as me. They were sitting across from me, and they could get on the internet just fine. They have AT&T just like me, and nothing was wrong with their phones, but I could not get on the internet. I asked a flight attendant to help me. She didn't know what was going on. My friend didn't know what was going on, so I just said, fuck it. I'm just going to try to take a nap. When you're hungover, napping ain't gonna happen, baby. So I just kind of sat there, stared in silence and thought about all the deep regret from all the vodka I drank that weekend. You know, I was in mental hell. So, so we land, I turned my phone on 
and I've got about 36 messages, and they're all from my dad and my sister. My sister's messages came up first. The first one said Rin. My sister never would text me my name. Like, that's weird. The second one said, I love you so much. For her to randomly say that just seemed weird. The third one said, call me ASAP. The fourth message said, I love you, Rin. I stopped reading after that. Called her immediately. I remember the words that came out of her mouth. She said, Harper's dead. I immediately just, I don't, I don't know. I just like started seeing black. I kind of like, I think I left my body. I can fully say I don't remember getting off that plane. I remember sort of my friend Katie talking on my phone. I think I handed it to her. I could barely stand up. I, I think that the flight attendant made everybody sit down and she let me off the plane first. That's like what my friends told me happened. And, you know, I walked through the airport to baggage claim. And I don't know how long I was there. It felt like I was only there for 30 seconds, but I think we were there for maybe 45 minutes waiting on our bags. I remember calling my dad, you know, when my mom couldn't even form sentences. And I just remember my dad saying, you have to take care of Douglas, who is my other brother. And I knew that I would only have a short time to grieve when he said that. I don't know what happened on the way home. My friends drove me to my boyfriend's apartment. I remember looking at him in the eye and he just didn't know what to say to me. I didn't want to be around anybody but him. And I was very grateful that he was there. I had about four hours to just kind of cry and scream it out. And then I had to figure out how I was going to get to my brother who was in Huntington Beach. And that's where Harper died is in Huntington Beach. And he had been with Douglas, my other brother, that entire day before. And I, I just... I was like, how, how am I going to get him here? Because he was absolutely beside himself. My dad said that he had been standing outside the car that Harper passed away in for God knows how long, just kind of pacing. And that couldn't have been healthy. But um, I Ubered him to LA and he spent the night with me at my boyfriend's apartment that night. And then I had to figure out how to get him on a plane back to South Carolina. But I had to stay in LA for the week because... There's all this like logistical stuff that you have to take care of when somebody dies. And my parents weren't getting on a plane and flying to California to take care of this stuff. I mean, they would have if they had to, but I knew that it was my responsibility and I was happy to do that so that my parents didn't have to. The first thing I had to do was the next morning I had to go to the coroner's office and collect his belongings. At this point, Douglas was still with me. So we went together. My boyfriend drove us there. There was a moment in the coroner's office that was very real for us. The coroner handed us a baggie of all these bracelets that Harper wore. And there was a purple one. There was one that said good vibes on it. There was another one that said boss on it. And then I can't remember what the other one said. I just remember like holding them in my hand, just like touching them for a second and just having a moment with Douglas and I think that's the moment that it sank in, is being real. His cell phone and his ID and all that was in there. He was actually living in a sober living house when he passed away. The next thing that we had to do was go to the sober living house and get his belongings, like his clothes and all that kind of stuff. He had died in a rental car. And this rental car he had rented from using this app called the Toro app. 
I just want to give a shout out to whoever invented this app. If you know someone who works at this company, I just want to express my gratitude because they made it so easy for me to return this car to its owner. So this app is basically you can you you rent a car, but it's somebody else owns the car. So it's like Airbnb for cars. We tried to get into Harper's cell phone via the Apple store, via the service carrier and the police department. And basically everybody told us to go fuck ourselves. If somebody dies and they've got an iPhone, unless you know the passcode, you better hope that you know the passcode or you can figure it out or something because they will not. It doesn't matter if they die. If you pay, my parents were paying the cell phone bill and they still wouldn't let them in it. So, and my, my mom is still trying to get in it. So um, that's, you know, a whole thing. But the car made it very easy for me. I called the customer service number. I explained how the phone that was used to rent this car is, you know, the person is deceased who rented the car now. So is there any way that you can get into the account and like help me get in contact with the owner of the car so that I can return it? And it was done. It was like such a seamless, easy process. The Apple store is like, give me this passcode, give me that passcode. It's just, they made it so complicated. So I just, that made my life like a little bit easier, but we had to clean the car out. I found this pink sweatshirt in the back that had good vibes written across the chest. That was one of his favorite sweatshirts, and I think I was meant to find it. Um, I wear that sweatshirt a lot. Probably I, like, refused to wash it for the first week. I sat where he died for a couple minutes, and then, you know, my boyfriend and my brother were like, all right, this is getting kind of weird. You got to get out of the car now. But I just, you know, I wanted to have that moment where I felt like I was, like, feeling him or something. I don't know. It's super fucking weird, and it's morbid, but it's just something that I had to do to, like, make myself be at peace, you know? We had to go get his belongings and we dealt with a little bit of a weird thing. And if your family member is in a sober living house, you know, these people are not always the best people. They do not always have your family member's best interests at heart because remember, it's a business at the end of the day. The rehab addiction whole business is a billion dollar business. You know, a lot of times they are just trying to get your money. So that's a whole issue. And I'll talk about that on a separate episode of like how difficult it was for us to get his stuff. They lied to us and said, they gave me the small bag and said, here's all of his stuff. And I was like, I don't think so. You know, my brother Douglas and I are very good at reading people. We know when someone's lying to us and we're like, this is not all of his stuff. So we went upstairs and of course the rest of his stuff is sitting there. That's just like a whole nother issue. But I put Douglas on a plane that night and then I had to go to the funeral home a couple days later and get the ashes because we'd had Harper cremated and I had to fly with his ashes on a plane across the country and thank God my boyfriend came with me. So I didn't have to do that alone, but that type of shit was really hard. I was in shock. I I mean, I think I barely ate two bites of food that week. Just It's just so much to process because you don't ever think that your family member is actually going to die. I mean, he was an avid drug user. He willingly did fentanyl. He had a lot of inner demons that he was dealing with, and unfortunately, he could not kick his addiction, and that's why he's no longer here on this earth. But I I think that in telling his story and where this all started and stemmed from and can maybe help other people realize that your addiction doesn't have to be bigger than you. You don't have to be defined by your addiction, and you're not defined by your addiction. You're so much more. You know, Harper was such an intelligent, loving, charismatic, hilarious person, and it makes me so sad that those qualities were overshadowed by his addiction because he let it be. 
a lot of people didn't see him as an addict because he didn't know he was that bad. And I just wish that he he would have known that or, you know, believed in himself. But the last thing I'll say is his addiction started when he was an athlete in high school. He was the quarterback of the football team and he got caught selling weed at school. The coach of the football team benched him and he was an amazing, excellent athlete. I mean, best athletic ability on the team. But that's devastating when you are this star quarterback. You got all eyes on you. Everybody's talking about how great of an athlete you are. And all of a sudden, you can't play anymore. And it's embarrassing because now he's in front of this entire school and everybody knows that he's gotten benched because he got caught selling weed at school. Shame on that coach. That's not how you make somebody better is by taking away the one good thing that kept him away from drugs. And my parents will never say this, but I am outspoken and I'll fucking say it. Fuck that coach for doing that. If you work with kids or if you're a coach of any sort, you work with student athletes, you see a teenager struggling with something like this, don't take away the one good thing, the one positive thing they have in their life. Build them up. You know, put them on a regimen where They have to check in with you every single day and take a drug test. There are other options where you can teach people a lesson. You don't have to take away something, you know, figure out a system where they got to check in with you or something. That could have been handled completely differently, but one thing led to another. He eventually spiraled, flunked out of high school, or rather he didn't flunk out because he was very intelligent. He just chose to stop going. And I'm so proud of him because he eventually ended up finishing school about a year before he passed away, which is amazing. And he whipped through those classes so quickly. Sharp, very sharp mind. But that is that is where it started. And I think a lot of pressure gets put on people. And it's not talked about how hard it is to be an athlete. You know, some people just can't handle the pressure. I think that teenagers and kids and people going through college and I- I- adults, the main thing that you see in addicts is that they don't have a hobby or they don't have something that brings them joy that they can focus on all the time. I do think if you have a hobbies or positive things in your life that it will prevent you from being on drugs. I mean, I'm not saying that that's like the only thing that's going to prevent you on being on drugs. You know, there's plenty of addicts who have hobbies. But the more joy you can get out of life, the less the likelihood is of you being on drugs. It's just kind of what I'm saying. I want to talk to some people who have been 10 years sober who used to be heroin addicts. I want to bring them on the podcast. I want them to give their perspective. I have a friend who's been in AA for a couple years, and hopefully she will agree to come on the podcast eventually. She has a podcast of her own, so I, I don't see why not. Again, I can't speak on what it's like from the addict's perspective. I just hope to shed light to other people and express how important it is to be compassionate because you just don't know what it's like. I mean, these people are in mental health. Anyone who is an addict is in mental hell. I mentioned a book on my first episode. It's called Loving Someone with Borderline Personality Disorder. I think to myself all the time, if I'd found that book before Harper died, that maybe I could have kept him alive. And it's unfortunate that I have those thoughts. I know anybody who listens to this that knows me is going to tell me it's not your fault, Ren. You couldn't have done anything else. You did all you could. But this book is an incredible book. Harper was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. But if you have an addict in your family, they don't need to have this disorder for you to be able to understand the addict mindset. Like this book as a whole just can help you understand how to deal 
with an addict if you have an addict family member. I've been talking too much for this episode rambling on, but next episode, maybe I'll, I'll get into more of the like how you do deal with an addict. I don't think there's really one way to deal with an addict. It's situational. All the love and compassion and set boundaries is really all I can say. I love you guys so much. And I just wanted to also express how grateful I am for everybody who's given me good feedback, who's tuning in and listening. And I just hope that you feel some sort of understanding. And if you have any questions, if you want to talk to me about your own addiction, I'm always here to listen to you, give you understanding or what have you. I I will say that three of Harper's drug buddies came to his funeral, or we called it a celebration of life. And, you know, I could see, you know, whatever way you think a druggie looks like, that's how they looked. And they looked this way because they were strung out. They looked tired. They looked like they hadn't slept in two weeks. But I didn't want them to feel unwelcome. I don't ever want anybody to feel unwelcome. So I went over to them and I asked them how they were doing. I thanked them for coming. I I knew who they were immediately because I had seen them in photos with Harper. Um, And they were, you know, the little girl told me that she was coming off of heroin and she had been on on Suboxone and she was shaking and she was, I mean, she looked like she was in withdrawal in the moment. And I felt for her. And, you know, there were two guys with her. One of the guys said he had been sober for a couple years, her boyfriend. And then there was another guy who... He looked like he was on something. Maybe he wasn't, but I I felt for these people and I gave them my cell phone number and told them to reach out to me if they ever need anything because I just think that everybody needs understanding and compassion. And I hope that that little girl who was trying to wean herself from heroin and was on Suboxone, I hope that she's sober. And now I'm thinking about it and I'm going to reach out to her and check on her because that my heart just goes out to people who are addicted to something. I'm, I'm lucky I don't have an addictive personality. I consider myself very fortunate. I've tried every drug in the book, except I've never tried heroin, but I've tried everything else. And I just, I get fucked up once from something. I'm like, oh, enough. I did acid in college and I was like, oh, I'm good. Thank you. I like to be in control of my surroundings and all that. So I'm lucky I don't, I don't have an addictive personality, but other people aren't as lucky. Fentanyl is a hell of a drug. Another thing I'll mention is how addictive fentanyl is compared to heroin and opioids. Uh, and, and the withdrawal, I've heard, feels like the flu times like 100. Like think of you, the worst you feel when you're having the flu. You got the chills. You, you can't sleep because you're so sick. But like times 100. Fentanyl withdrawal is worse than heroin withdrawal, I've heard. Again, I've never been through this myself. So I am only speaking from what other addicts have told me. The person who reached out to me on Instagram who sought treatment for themselves, they mentioned that there were actually no opioids in their system. Oh my God, I can't say the word opioids. I'm like fucking freaking out. Um, They mentioned that there were actually no opioids in their system, that it was only fentanyl. So be fucking careful. If you're out there on the street, you're buying street Xanax because you just need to sleep a couple nights a week. I get it. I've been there. But test the shit out. They make fentanyl testing strips. They do it. And if, if you are struggling yourself because you don't know how to get off these pills or these drugs or whatever it is you're on, or you know someone who's struggling, have faith because you can get off of this shit. You can. I know you can. You just have to believe that you are worthy of living a fulfilling life. And my brother's not here today because he did not believe he was worthy of living a fulfilling life. And it's very sad and I miss him a lot. And I get angry some days. 
Other days I'm happy and I can tell jokes and I can laugh about it and what not. I can't laugh about his death, but I can laugh about the different memories we had and make light of the situation. People can make fentanyl jokes and I'm totally cool with it. And other days I just fucking pop a cap and I'm like sobbing and can't get out of my bed. Hopefully this serves as some type of encouragement for you. If you're having a bad day, if you feel like it's the end of the world because you're never going to see your family member again, your friend again, you know, life does go on and they're here with you. You know, I see Harper's name all the time. When I'm having a bad day, I truly, swear to God, I'll look up and just, like, see his name somewhere. Or, like, it'll pop up on my phone on, like, a targeted ad. Like, I get, like, I got a jewelry ad the other day, and it was, like, one of those name necklaces, and it said Harper across it. I'll see, like, a fashion ad on the Instagram, and it'll say, like, the Harper dress. Or, like, the Harper pants or something. Like, it's super freaky, but I, he's constantly letting me know that he's with me. And I can feel his energy around me now. I Some days I do struggle because I like can't feel it around me and I get frustrated, but I can feel it most days and you just have to believe. So thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate all your support and we'll see you next time. Enlighten me. I be a boss, I got the sauce, no point in fighting me Demons leave them torch, I run my kingdom, call me sire We never taking L's, only lessons No, we never counting fails, only blessings Never stressing I said enlighten me, bitch I be a boss I got the sauce, no point in fighting me Gang they hyping me, rightfully I am stable, I am able, I am wealthy Full of health, on the rise, I got the belt You got a problem? Check yourself, bitch